0: Welcome to Not of Champagne, a podcast that doesn't play well in the Red Wall. My name's Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. So this podcast is, is the latest in a number of episodes that we've done on the changing shifts in British politics. We've got a recent paper by Jane Green and Ruzmarin Gaius from the Nuffield Politics Research Centre, and they argue that economic insecurity is going to be a driver of voting intention in Britain in British politics in the future. But with the cost-of-living crisis... That does seem like a very reasonable assumption. What, therefore, does the report tell us about where the next couple of years might head? Actually, on, on the podcast ever, ever since 2016. Uh, do you remember 2016? Feels like a very long time ago, but just about. About how the Brexit vote in particular wasn't really driven by class, was sort of driven by age, education, by place. Uh, we've talked about Brexit Land as well, the re- uh, excellent recent book about those changing shifts. And this is. report that sort of talks about those areas but in a slightly different way doesn't it because one of the things it says is essentially looking as much as it is between the differences between generations rather than just looking at sort of old and young yeah it
1: it, it is very much kind of looking at those those differences in a much more nuanced way i I think is the best way to to, to kind of describe that the focus is very much on the the disparity of wealth, I think I think the uh, report kind of divides everything up in terms of like younger generations at least between will haves and won't haves, i.e. individuals who like at the moment might be somewhat economically in- insecure, but at some point there there will be a large inheritance or or something coming their way. Um, their their career progression is will be pretty is likely to be pretty solid and they will become more economically secure as time goes on. In contrast to that, you have the won't haves who are are more likely to be non-university educated, not be graduates, and are over time likely to remain economically insecure and though that is according to this report is the kind of like the real dividing line um between basically what the future of, of british politics is going to, is going to look like over the long term
0: yeah and i think there's been a lot of caricaturing of sort of red wall voters of, of brexit voters about how somehow you that the main cleavage in british politics is between young liberal graduates and uh, older voters with sort of no formal qualification. And instead, as you say, it's it's the gaps between the graduates and the non-graduates, which I think are interesting. And that's true regardless of age. And there's that wealth gap between younger graduates and younger non-graduates as well. It talks about a a survey question from 2018 in which people were asked, is it likely that you're going to be able to buy a house in the next five to 10 years? 44% of graduates said they could see themselves buying a house and only 18% of non-graduates said they could see themselves buying a house
1: uh, yeah and like it, it's kind of understandable to, to see why when you look at the cost of uh houses and uh everything that goes into it like it's a very expensive thing to do and like if, you, if you're not in a in a career path which actually gets you to the point where you are you know earning you know as, as a couple a, a minimum of like 60 60 grand a year. You can you're going to struggle to be able to get onto the onto the housing ladder for a lot of kind of like housing, um, especially in large parts of the UK um, and, and cities and areas like that. Uh, London is obviously its own special like hell uh, for this sort of thing, and it almost needs to be treated completely separately. Uh, but yeah, no, housing is just very much the the tip of the iceberg. Uh, though I feel it's, it's the very noticeable bit when it comes to um, the differences between, uh, you know, graduates and, and, and non-graduates, but it's, it's very emblematic.
0: It's Interesting you mentioned London, because even in London, there are particular areas in where there's, there's quite high concentrations of especially younger non-graduates. So in particular, younger non-graduates in London, they tend to live on the east side of London, The extreme West, so essentially sort of greater London and away from what the report calls the leafier and the more affluent part of London's central constituencies and the southwest as well. And let's face it, this disparity is something that will only have got worse, I think, since the pandemic and something which, again, I think the report points out. And I think in terms of policy implications, it's probably one of the more interesting and striking policy implications from the report which is something we've talked about before in terms of it's not just about social mobility and getting people to university, which is is the driver. Um, It's about it's about trying to provide opportunity for, for everyone. And it's more about focusing on more equality of outcome, not just sort of equality of opportunity. That what tends to seems to be happening is that inequality is rising because those who go to university tend to be more wealthy, and therefore, are able to buy houses because their parents are able to save up. they either able to inherit or buy a deposit. Okay, that's a very very broad assumption, but the trends are borne out. And actually, you look at the work of say people someone like Joseph Stiglitz, That's borne out from the research in the US as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a reason there's an entire genre on, on of, of tweets on Twitter, which are somebody you can uh, they te- Telegraph articles, which are talking about how this person was able to, uh, you know, save up and scrimp and save to buy their re- this very expensive house and do all of these things. And yet they'll talk about all of the sacrifices, quote unquote, they had to make, which, you know, they probably did sacrifice things to be able to save up a load of money to do it but what they all always have buried in there is that line that says and we were gifted two hundred and fifty thousand we were gifted three hundred thousand we were gifted a thousand pounds by our parents in order to cover the cover a uh, deposit or start this business or or whatever it might be so yeah that kind of uh generational kind of uh capacity for for, for gifting um, things is, is certainly something that is only available to a, a very select part of society. That's very much going to be, I, I, I think, one of the things that's going to constantly come up over the, uh, on these sorts of discussions uh, over the next few years, probably even decades, I reckon, given how slow we are to resolve these things.
0: So the argument as to why you generally seem to have graduates being less economically insecure the non-graduates, the report argues, is essentially down to the expansion of the knowledge economy, globalization, automation, deindustrialization, um, which I think is fair enough, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, those like your graduates tend to find themselves in jobs where they have more bargaining power because they tend to be doing more specialist roles, which can't be automated which can't be uh you know you know replaced out or even necessarily um shipped off to to, to, to somewhere else in the world um whilst in in contrast your it's a terrible word because i don't think it actually describes the jobs popular, but what are clusters low skill jobs are often the ones which can be as you say automated replaced sent off elsewhere but the reality is this is and and because because of that and the fact that we have like not really seen the proceeds of economic growth actually evenly distributed to throughout throughout society you end up with um the more economically insecure not having the bargaining power to actually bargain for increased wages and and, and things like that which then means they can't have the increased wages that might allow them to become more economically secure or be able to save up for houses and things like that.
0: Are we saying that trickle-down economics doesn't work?
1: Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a radical thought, Corey, but I mm. think you might be right.
0: Wow. Wow, that, that is, yeah, shocking uh, left-wing communism on this podcast, and just, just to add to that. So the other thing the report says is that a lot of older graduate, old, older non-graduates are generally, again, generally tend to be more economically secure. And that's generally because they have been better protected by, um, say, more secure work, uh, more more likely to have bought a house, more likely to have a pension. I think that's partly because you've mentioned the sort of massive increase of house prices makes it harder for those who are younger, both graduates and non-graduates, to be on the housing ladder. I think it's also uh, a red... Broken Heartlands by Sebastian Payne, uh, which is a really interesting book, actually. Uh, It's about, it takes a sort of case of, he goes to 10 red wall seats, actual red wall, not sort of the red wall that people on Twitter talk about, actual red wall seats that fell. A recurring theme is that in a lot of these seats, you had collective institutions that essentially were, were broken down, especially in the 1980s by Margaret Thatcher, whether it's coal mines whether it's the fishing industry whether it what usually big factories trade unions that sort of solid that community spirit that solidarity essentially has broken down and and isn't there now for the again I, I hate this but you, you know for,
1: for 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 less skilled quote unquote jobs and like um the unions were in many ways the driving force between making sure that they, they were getting a fair deal and that that membership isn't there anymore um, of, of, of the trade unions uh, amongst that, that section of society um, for various reasons. And as a result of that, a lot of bargaining power has been lost, which is why these, uh, those positions tend to be the ones that get short, short threat. It's, it's why, you know, you end up with fire and rehire and things like that happening in, in, in Centrica uh, and, and a lot of other places and, or, um, you know, zero hour contracts being abused because there's no one, actually in the workplace, in an organised position to stand up for these sorts of things.
0: Well, it's hard. It, we, we sort of touched on this a, a little bit before. I think you talked with Luke John Davis during one of my sabbaticals last year about this and how it is. It, it, it's much hard. It's easier when you, everyone's in the factory, you just sign up to a union. It's different now when, as you say, there's lots of zero... You've got zero-hours contracts. Um, often, if it is, uh, Uber drivers don't have a central office that they go to to sign up so it's much more diffuse than it is now and some unions have done a really good job actually trying to get into those places and unionize uber and delivery. it's just much harder isn't it i think what has happened as a result of that sort of breakdown of those collective institutions is uh, paul mason calls it in a very paul mason way the crisis of the neoliberal self which i think is essentially the argument that in the 1980s well, the, the, the Margaret Thatcher's bargain with a lot of these places was that you can, and, and sort of new labourers to a lesser extent, was, um, OK, the collective institutions have gone, but you can shop in nice supermarkets and buy designer stuff, um, which kind of went after 2008. But I wonder if this leads to the second point of the report, which is, I think the report is very, very interesting and it's worth sort of reading that is misleading to simply equate economic vulnerability to concerns about immigration, support for Brexit or socially conservative values. So again, it's this stereotype that Red Wall voters are, are economically left behind pro-Brexit, but actually what they find is that those who are most who have the most socially conservative values, and the most pro-leave, often are also among the most economically secure voters, and they tend to be older. And they tend to be non-graduates. That doesn't necessarily surprise
1: me um, as a as, as a statement when you when, when you think about it. Like like if you view Brexit, for instance, as a an economic or political gamble, which in many ways it was. If if you're in favour of it, you need your are you're, you're probably in favour of it because you know you can potentially weather that whether that storm or if, if things go a bit wrong you know that you'll you'll be all right in the end if you think you're capable of of, of surviving you're much more likely to support something uh, on, on a policy level so that the uh backers of brexit are more likely to be economically secure isn't that shocking to me um despite a lot of the narrative that goes around about it being you know a revolt of the left behind and, and things like that it's the, and uh, e- equally, when you when you look at the other half of it that you talked about there about you know um, them being non graduates and they're also being uh, in possession of more you know conservative with a small C views. Well, that that holds up to what we know anyway. And I think the report also kind of shows that even amongst like younger, if you, if you look at younger generations, between the there is a difference between graduates and non graduates, where the non graduates still still tend to be more conservative with a little say than than graduates tend to be so if that holds true then you know it all it all kind of does make sense as a as a as an outcome
0: it also reminds me of polling that came out during the remember theresa may i think she was prime minister at one point again a long long time ago and when it looked like the uk was hurtling to no deal which would be horrific chaos uh, the uh, I think there was polling done among Leave voters that found that the more affluent Leave voters were very relaxed about no deal, happy to go for no-deal Brexit. Those poorer Leave voters weren't. And, I, and there was an, a really interesting cleavage in the Leave coalition between those two voters. And although, um, again, I think part of it is sort of the narrative of the night. In fact, we talked on our local elections podcast, I think, a couple of weeks ago, about people's perceptions of the night being shaped by how when the votes come in and when they're counted. And I think often with leave in 2016, it's the fact that Sunderland was very quick to count and leave did much better than was expected in the models, which means that Sunderland becomes much more emblematic. Whereas actually, in terms of the leave majority of the Northeast, it's tiny, the vast majority of Lee's majority came from the well-to-do areas in the southeast that's where the majority is but that was never who was seen as the um, quintessential Brexit voter whereas instead actually as you say um, it was easier for these people to go on that sort of gamble because they were going to be pretty secure anyway
1: yeah and kind of like the media framing of that as you say because Sunderland is one of the first that to 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 get their their results in because Sunderland's also one of the areas that's almost like in a race to to be first on general election night, if I remember correctly, as well. So, like, yeah, for, forty-five yeah. minutes it usually takes. Yeah, which is that's ridiculous, mm. um, but but yeah, the um, but again, you can kind of see this notion of like the the order of things coming in, um, impacting on like the media narratives that happen, and it happened with the local elections a few weeks back as well. So it's all um, it's it, it's all very interesting, and I do I do find it absolutely fascinating uh, how it's kind of filtering through to the kind of like not just like the top level kind of like political analysis of commentators, but it's also then filtering through in a way that it
0: probably shouldn't to actual political strategy of the Conservative Party in particular. I think it's something else we've talked about again, just to sort of show it's not necessarily the. Uh, it's not these red wall voters as in being economically left behind cultural conservative we've talked about say things like barrett holmes and how as always there's a stephen bush column about this steve which we're going to approve in this site so the the stephen bush argument is that actually what the 2019 election was about is the conservatives extending their voting coalition to economically concert uh, economically secure voters who weren't previously conservative uh, and again if you think about what the original definition of red wall was meant to be it was a group of seats that demographically were the same as other conservative seats but were voting labor and that broke in 2019 again Sorry. probably because of a mixture of brexit jeremy corbyn boris johnson but a lot of the uh, the reasons is well again we, we talked a couple of weeks ago the conservatives usually would build houses build a property owning democracy which make people more conservative they've done that to some extent in these seats and it's understandable why those sort of voters would be voting conservative
1: yeah they've got something to lose um from their perspective and therefore they don't want to want uh, to want to risk it um from their perspective of like you know, something uh, you know, labor coming in, or if there is a gamble because that that's on something that something major, and they feel it's it's worth the risk. They are secure enough. So it's a really interesting dynamic that actually that on one hand they don't they wouldn't want to vote labor because that's seen as a risk to them uh personally, but on the wider kind of societal risk, they're a okay with like kind of like taking that, that 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 jab and and that stab at it just for the for the for the chance that it might pay off. It's a really odd kind of like balancing acts there or
0: lack of balancing i suppose i wonder not quite to relitigate the referendum campaign again but i wonder if it's sort of the distance of um that the the economic argument that remain made just didn't really make a lot of sense to those voters i think the other the other other aspect i think is that actually a lot of areas that saw a lot of austerity also voted to leave and again a, a sort of thread of the broken heartless book is um this idea of uh, this argument about what what good did new labor do in these seats so take sedgefield in particular and actually you can point to new labor's massive investment in the short start centres, massive investment in schools massive investment in hosp- hospitals to bring waiting times down there's loads of investment that that came in um and it, i think it's almost it's um, Labour's not really done a really good job of talking about the good that they did in government since 2010 um, under a range of different leaders. Uh, but I think it's also, it was easy to, um, what, once a lot of that got rolled back by the coalition government and then the Cameron government, it was very easy then, I think, just to say, well, actually, I'm, I'm not doing very well because of the impact of these cuts in this seat. Yeah. So third thing then, and this is where we sort of go into more of the Electoral implications, I suppose, is if then you have uh, essentially a conservative coalition, which is economically secure, often non-graduates in the South and the North, and that's why they got the 2019 election result they did. Labour's voting coalition is more economically insecure graduates usually um, and again it's it's an interesting dichotomy because the the we'll end up talking about culture wars a little bit but the cultural framing of it usually is that the labor party now is just um a feat middle class uh well people like us really steve who drink lattes and flat whites and don't work down factories um and don't really you know we just woke hippies who don't really understand normal people and actually, that's not quite true of the Labour Coalition. The thing that often is, is true is that the Labour coalition is generally tends to be more economically insecure. Before we talk about, I suppose, the implications for the parties, something it's probably worth talking about are some of the uh, inequality, the, the other inequalities. So, for instance, so women tend to feel more economically insecure than men, and that's throughout all age groups. Uh, which is interesting, it's hard to know if that's just a sort of reporting thing of men tend to be more confident, you know, I can win a fight with a lion and I'm definitely also economically secure, whereas actually women might tend to be more realistic about these things or a bit more cautious. It could also be because women tend to work more part-time, which is also more sort of inherently insecure work. Yeah, uh, and it's also tr- sorry, go on. they're also much more likely to be like sole, um, you know,
1: caregivers and and and, and carers and, and things like that as well, which would be a much more precarious position for uh, uh, from, from an economic standpoint as well. So yeah, I think it's going to be a, a combination of those different things. Although, yeah, it wouldn't shock me if if the whole men just being a bit more braggadocious and thinking, oh, we'll be fine, doesn't also factor into it in some form. After all, I can't remember what the stat was, but it was a ridiculous percentage of men thought that they could like win a point against Serena Williams.
0: That's true. I think the, the, the thing the report says, I suppose, is that the, the gaps might well persist and exacerbate because um it doesn't seem that if women have a degree, that that provides the same economic security that it does for men. So even if the graduate population in- increases, there are still some policy implications, which you'd like to think the government would look at.
1: Yeah, you, you'd hope they would. Um,
0: but this is Boris Johnson's administration
1: we're talking about here. Uh, so uh, let's let's not get our, uh, our hopes up too high.
0: If we're going to think about the electoral implications of this, so the Conservatives... a problem winning over younger non-graduates and holding on to economically insecure voters because one of the things is um that as we've sort of said the the argument from the conservatives is very cultural isn't it it's that labor doesn't really represent these people and labor's full of woke hippies who support you know tearing down the statues and all that nonsense well actually what the report says is actually economics is more important economics generally with trump culture and it's. Um, but two things actually one of them is that it's probably uh especially in the cost of living crisis it's pretty easier to appeal to their economic insecurities than it is of cultural issues the other thing it says is if you tend to be economically insecure but quite culturally conservative they tend to be the groups of people who are least likely to vote and that i think is something that's borne out in the Brexit vote, actually, that there were lots of people who voted, probably for the first time in 2016, and maybe again in 2019 for the Conservatives, but in the future may well vote for parties like Reform rather than the Conservative Party,
1: or may not even vote at all. That is the, the 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 other potential thing. Like we've, there's definitely been like almost like this expectation that oh the genie is out of the bottle. These people have like started voting, therefore they're, they're going to continue to do so. I mean, they might do, and there, there certainly is evidence to, to, to suggest that once you do start voting, especially if you start voting at an earlier age, you tend to continue in in one way or another. But that's not guaranteed. Like if if the entirety of your voting uh, history is consisted of a once in a lifetime opportunity to shake up the system in terms of Brexit, and then you know uh, the twenty maybe the twenty seventeen election where you maybe begrudgingly. Kind of went either for Corbyn because you thought maybe he was real change, or went for May because, um, well, we strong still and stable. To, yeah, strong and stable. We still need to deliver Brexit in some form, and then 2019 you voted Johnson to get Brexit done. Like that's like if if the next general election is a a bit more of a standard election historically, are you going to feel like you should like you need to? To get out there and vote especially if it ends up being say between starmer and johnson uh as 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 the you know prime ministerial candidates like johnson's blotted his copybook probably with a lot of these people already based on the polling we're seeing and we'll probably be talking about uh sue gray report and everything else on our uh, patreon <laughs> <That's> <laughs> later. Like yeah later, later on so uh do head over to, to there and sign up for that if you haven't already if you want to hear our take on uh, on all of that nonsense um but yeah if you've got that kind of combination of, of starmer and and johnson and johnson's very unpopular and starmer with the best will in the world doesn't set the world alight so or hasn't so far in a lot of ways in terms of like cutting through to people Um, he's not doing badly but he's not
0: he's taken labor from 20 points behind in the polls to be leading he's oh, winning yeah. on
1: best prime minister I'm what not more thinking... do you want him to do steve I'm I'm saying that when you look at the various focus groups and like the uh, the kind of like the words that people associate with him, people don't like him as a. I was about to say like him as a person. That's not the right word. That like they're not infused by him necessarily. They're they're just happy to see Labour in sensible hands. Like he isn't Tony Blair, the second coming of Tony Blair, where people are going, this guy, this guy's got something special. Um, is is my general point.
0: Um, that's like comparing a new album that comes out though to Elvis Costello's Get Happy. But it's it's not going to be there, is it?
1: <laughs> well, that's um, what people are looking for when the, when they do the, these sorts of things. And that's bad expectations and poor expectation management on the part of politicians and political parties. But
0: that's what people are looking for. It's the fault mainly of the British people. And <laughs> I also I love your charming naivety that somehow the next election will be a standard election when it's almost certainly going to be horrific horrific slog or am i just sort of am i reliving my election ptsd think, too often uh, now i think you're
1: very much in the thick of it and therefore just seeing every uh or, or and you're very aware obviously all of the of all of the hard work that goes into it at every kind of level for any form of election um it's whether or like so it's rather whether or not from the casual observer's perspective it's a it's a uh another once in a generation election i suppose is the best way to
0: put it we should probably get back to what we were talking about which is so we've talked about the conservative problem yeah. uh labor problem i suppose is that what happens if you have economically secured graduates and what are the issues there and i mean the conservatives are doing quite a good job actually at ensuring that uh there is no problem for Labour in this demographic. On the other hand, I think what the report does say, which is interesting, is there are potential routes, I think, say for the smaller parties like the Greens Lib Dems to pick up these voters. I mean, that's already sort of happening in the blue wall, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But then that's not too bad for Labour. No, in fact,
1: for from Labour's
0: perspective, like actually we
1: need, for instance, the Lib Dems to do well against the Tories and for them to win seats off of the Tories. And similarly. T- t- for, the, for, the, for the Greens as well though obviously in, in different seats. Um, there are very few areas where Lib Dems and Labour are going head to head there might be a handful nominally at least where it's 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 Labour and Greens um, certainly on like a, a local election level maybe I suppose like areas like Bristol and, and, and things like that for, for, for the Greens are target areas so there will be some kind of butting of heads there but uh, uh, but yeah, so but broadly speaking, for the Tories to do badly, we need mo- we need more minor parties or, or smaller parties to do better um, than they have been as well, because they take seats and votes away from the Conservatives in in those areas. In some instances, that benefits Labour. In others, it benefits, um, you know, that, that
0: smaller party. So we have talked about the revival of of the blue wall. And hello, Mark, by the way, uh, trying to build another plank in Tiverton and Hunt, probably not even part of the blue wall i mean if that's the blue wall it's, it's not so much of a wall it's just a, a just random collection of bricks so you've got some best for britain polling and i realize we, uh, that said that again best for britain seem to sort of say that what we should do um is have some sort of progressive alliance whatever that means because their mrp polling only has the lib dems only winning 13 seats and i realize we're sort of in a similar position we were leading up to the 2019 election where we couldn't see how these seats were going to go Lib Dem. But when you look at the local election results in places like Dominic Raab's seat, if you have a voting projection that has the Lib Dems only winning 13 seats, I feel like your model's wrong. And I realise that sounds like the most entitled form of nonsense at this point. Yeah, I mean, it is one of those things where, you know, different predictions and
1: different calculations are go into these sorts of... Um, uh, you know models and, and things like that but i don't know to what extent they do pay attention to things like local election results and and how they factor them in um because they are as as like any political activist knows uh and and, and any real kind of like political kind of watcher knows local election results in an area tend to be quite predictive for the for the general election, you know, doesn't mean you're necessarily going to win a constituency just uh the uh, general election just because you did well in the locals. There are all kinds of factors in there, but it it gives you an indication as to how how competitive at the very least you will be, and whether or not you are are, are you should be investing time, money, and resources into that area. So yeah, I mean it it like my. My gut instinct, and this is a terrible, terrible thing for me to do, because I'm going to go out on a limb and actually make a make a prediction here. I know. I I feel like my my gut instinct is we're probably going to be looking at around about twenty odd potential seats for the Lib Dems. Maybe a bit more if they have a very good night. Slash the Conservatives have a very bad one on the uh, on the uh, on the day of the general election. Obviously, we're still God only knows how far away things could change in that time, and therefore I reserve. Six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I reserve the right to uh, change, uh, change this prediction like any good, uh, any good forecaster.
0: <laughs> I, I think the, so the, I think the more in, uh, and we will talk about more of, uh, of this, I think the most important thing I think is actually what the report says is the, the, the chronic levels of economic insecurity need to be addressed. There, was, there were issues in terms of people not sure they could buy a house worrying them as people saying they weren't sure they could find 300 pounds in an emergency and that's only going to have got worse since covid it's only going to have got much much worse now there's massive inflation and the cost of living crisis and it would be nice to think the government's got a plan to deal with that on that subject we're going to talk about the sue grey report on our patreon page aren't we steve
1: uh, yeah, we are. So, if you uh, do want to hear that, you should head over to Patreon.com/slash/notenoughchampagne, where for a few pounds every month you get access to these unique little episodes, which go out to uh, go out there.
0: Our website's notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebookcom forward splat- forward, splash. <laughs> forward, forward, smash! Not enough champagne. Uh, I've lost it now. I can't remember the order now. I can only do it. Like, it's like the alphabet.
1: You've got to do it straight from the start or nothing at all. Oh, yeah. not
0: at all. Uh, I'm at paper writer. I'm at I'm let to say it for you. This is terrible. Happy <laughs> plotting, everyone.